Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's ordered its bucket and spade and its panic buying sun cream. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. It's August, listeners. That means the Not Enough Champagne silly season is upon us. Well, in fact, the, the silly season in British politics, not just for Not Enough Champagne. Um, and incredibly, we're going to talk about sport again, Steve. We've gone five years without talking about sport on this podcast. We're going to do two sporting episodes in a month. It's astounding, really. I just don't understand how this has happened. Partly because the Olympic Games is on, I suppose. So it's, it's final day will be the day this episode comes out. So we'll we'll talk about. There you go. That's the sound of the Olympic Games leaving the stadium, and we're going to talk about some of the wider issues that have come out of that, and inevitably end with the demise of English cricket. else that we haven't talked much in the podcast but probably ought to do is the importance of mental health and I think what's been really interesting in this Olympics has been the reaction to um, Simone Biles the American gymnast who very explicitly talked about the mental health struggles that she'd had and okay there's a few people there's a few Piers Morgans out there who want to sort of try and claim that somehow it's that elite athletes should essentially just suck it up and get on with it rather than just perform. I think actually what's interesting is that you're seeing more and more elite athletes actually put their mental well-being first. And that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. It does have to be a good thing. Um, but equally, it's, it's one of those things where the elite athletes are kind of like suffering from mental health problems isn't actually that surprising. But there was some research done which basically found that a shockingly large number of kind of like elite athletes um, of, of all sorts um, were uh, had been suffering from stress, depression, all of these different things. Because put bluntly, the entirety of their professional sporting careers boils down to their their performance in a small handful of competitions. So it's not surprising that actually, um, you know, especially around the Olympics, there's an awful lot of stress, pressure, mental health problems that can go into it. There there have been some interesting discussions where um, former kind of like uh, athletes have been like like talking about how actually we we need to redefine success when it comes to the sports people who are like participating in the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games and things like that. Because... Like, we seem to view it as unless you got one, two, three, that's a failure. But the reality is if you get four or five, that still means you're top five in the world. Truly, like, the, the thing that has kicked that off, as you say, is is, is Simone, Bile, uh, Simone Biles' just very upfront way of just saying, I'm having mental health problems, I'm therefore not participating in this, I need to put myself for, uh, front and centre. And that is very new. And that is a really positive change, despite the dodgy uh, Piers Morgans saying that, oh, no, they should all just suck it up and carry on. Something that I discovered is an academic concept while doing some research for this is the idea of the sport ethic. And it's this idea that athletes should sacrifice for their sport 
and seek distinction and take risk and challenge the limits as opposed to um, looking after their their mental and their physical health as well. I mean, there's examples of, I think, athletes and people in all sports sort of pay, playing through the pain barrier, footballers getting injections to be played and what have you. Uh, and actually, I think it's nice to see a bit of a change in approach. You look at some of the stresses that elite athletes have to go through. So you've got not the the, the, the relentless training, the, the the constant travel. So Ben Stokes, for instance, the England cricketer, saying he's going to be on an extended mental health break. Um, I mean, he will have been part of a bubble for uh, living in COVID bubbles for the best part of a couple of years now, traveling around the world, spending a lot of time away from his family. It's not surprising that that kind of takes its strain. And even funding as well. So one of the British gold medal winners who won in the um, gold for BMX actually had to crowdfund because her funding was cut and managed to raise £50,000 and they had a gold medal. It's, a, it's an amazing story, but that must have been incredibly stressful to live through. And yeah, there is definitely this this mentality. And I don't think it even necessarily holds true just for sport. I think you will find this in a lot of other areas as well. It's, it's, it's certainly in the world of the arts when it comes to music and, you know, literal art, as you want to put it, like painting and, and things like that. There is a notion that you need to sacrifice for the thing that you are that you are, are, are passionate about, that in order for, to, for you to pr- prove that you are truly dedicated to whatever it is, you have to push yourselves to to the to the breaking point, and that is something that 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 cuts across an awful lot of areas of society. You can see it in kind of like attitudes in work, where it's just like, oh no, of course you've got to go above and beyond the call of duty. Yeah, you're not being paid to do that, but of course, if you want to get that promotion, you've got to go do that. In sports, in particular, that attitude has just kind of become the dominant culture across everything. Um, and to see that challenged in a meaningful way is, is I think, a very good thing. This is probably more, I think, in in arts rather than sport. But almost one of the flip sides of that trope of having to sacrifice for your art is, and men, usually men actually, who are musicians or writers, who then end up essentially not doing any housework, letting the state that essentially like making their partner or their wife sort of sort out of the house because they have to be the maverick who is writing the novel or um, painting the masterpiece or um, editing a podcast, dare one say. One other big example this year of a, someone in, in sport who's also tried to take a stand for their mental health is Naomi Osaka, a tennis player who didn't want to be interviewed by the press after her matches. And again, this is just... It, it's a, it, The treatment that she got as a result of that I found slightly unbelievable. Just the idea that somehow... Um, again, Asaka is 23 years old, and after performing in a match, especially if you say you've lost or incredibly draining, incredibly stressful, and then you need to be in front of the world's media, I can't imagine having a bad day at work and then having to... It's bad enough having a conversation with your line manager about that, <laughs> let alone CNN. And again, this goes to, to a kind of a wider discussion where maybe there's something we could maybe talk about in, 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 in regards to this, especially in relation to social media and things like that, where if you are a known figure, and, and it doesn't even necessarily need to be like, you know, a, a, a household name, that there's still like an assumption that we have a right to her, we have a right to her time, we have a right to her 
to 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 see exactly how she how she's feeling we have a, we we have an inherent right to her inner her inner monologue and her inner her thoughts and her emotions which is complete nonsense like we don't have that no one has the right to that other than herself and who she chooses to like share that with and some 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 sports people may be a lot more comfortable doing that and fair play to them if they're comfortable with it but equally it's not a bad thing for someone to just say I've just taken the beating of a lifetime on this on this tennis court. I don't want to do this anymore. So, like, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna not talk to you. But I mean, it's different doing it in a team sport where there might there's a dozen yeah. of you, one of whom you might be able to put up bet- be- between it just being a, an, an individual as well. And especially when you look at some of the media scrutiny of it, it, players like Andrew Flintoff, who essentially developed an eating. It, one of the things he says is that. He, a lot of media coverage of him was about his size and that led to him developing an eating disorder. There are proper consequences here, which, again, the media seems to forget and seems to assume it has a right to this. Yeah, we, 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 we treat sports people, um, musicians, artists, not as as people for the most part, but as objects of our entertainment in, in some capacity, um, which ultimately dehumanises them when it comes to a lot of the coverage um, even when it's just like a review of you know the work that they're doing, it like you know you could you can absolutely um, you know talk about Flintoff's performance without talking about his size or, or or anything like that. But even when you're talking about the performance of that individual, we don't take into consideration that there is a person there who might be very well reading it and then and taking that criticism on board in some form sometimes that might be valid criticism and they might go yeah actually you know what that was that was legit um but a lot of the time they'll be going no that's that's not accurate at all that's not what i was thinking or what i was doing and you don't know what's happening the impression i get from reading a few players autobiographies is that it's very much like some prime ministers you know in it in the same way that prime ministers like gordon brown or john major would read that get up at four in the morning and read the first editions of the papers and then be put into end up in more trauma because of the the headlines they've just seen uh, i think there's some cricketers who would just let the it's water the ducks back wouldn't read it wouldn't take it in and then there's some who do then obsess about what the, the media is saying um talking of sport as a sort of branch of the entertainment industry the other thing i, I sort of wanted to talk about was TV rights with the Olympics. So in the last couple of Olympic Games, the BBC's been able to have wall-to-wall red-button coverage. So you've been able to watch 30, 40 events at once on the red button on the iPlayer. And that's not been the case this year. And that's because the rights have been bought by Discovery instead, sort of linked to Eurosport. And they paid $1.2 billion for that those rights. Now, I know you don't know much about sports, Steve. But that's a lot of money. Uh, you've got um, me a lot of money. And then they, they've then Discovery have sort of sublicensed that out to national broadcasters. So usually, what would happen is it would go to the European Broadcasting Union, and they would then give it to the main state broadcaster. So uh, they're the same people who work the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah. Um, I know you're talking about something I understand. There we go. And what that means is that the BBC can only have two live feeds on at a time. Uh, and if you want the full shebang, you need to su- subscribe to Discovery Plus, and you will be surprised to hear, Steve, that Discovery's profits are up twenty-one percent as a result of that. This seems to me a bit of a short-sighted decision because all I can see in my head is Giles Clark, 
who was head of the ECB in the mid-2000s. And the ECB did something very, very similar. They sold the rights, sorry, the England World Cricket Board, I should say, for our American listeners. Hello, Patrick, by the way. So they sold the rights. Cricket used to be on free-to-air television on the BBC, then Channel 4. And it was sold for a, a huge amount of money. It was, we're probably talking millions rather than hundreds of thousands of pounds to be broadcast on Sky rather than on free-to-air telly. And that money was then put back into grassroots cricket. But essentially, the result of that has been that young people don't have the exposure to cricket that they would have done. People, Younger people don't know who England cricketers are, uh, as opposed to how they were doing before. And I think what that means is, just thinking about the Olympics, where you would have seen, there have been stories of British medalists who saw some of the more obscure sports in the Olympics on the BBC now aren't going to see them. So how are you going to have this sort of, and this is probably not just true in Britain, true everywhere, but how, as you say, some of these, for some of the smaller sports, this is going to be the only time they get exposure for two or four years. How are they going to break through if most of it's on a pay-per-view that most people can't see? Uh, absolutely, 100%. You're right with that. Um, and that, that's especially true. Um, and I think the, the British case is, has got some quite some like, nice little stories. You've already kind of like alluded to one of them already, which is uh, the BMX uh, 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 athlete who, who won gold um, after having to crowdfund their own way uh, to, to, to the Olympics um, because the funding had been cut. But also we've got, I think it was in the skateboarding, where we've where we we've got our youngest ever gold medalist um, in the form of a thirteen year old, and like those sorts of people in those sorts of events are the sorts of things that and all are actually a generation of kind of like young people are actually going to be paying attention to, um, but they can't watch it now despite the fact that you know BMX and skateboarding are actually both really major like global sports um, in and of themselves. But uh, people aren't going to know that they, they, you can actually do anything with it because they're not going to be able to see it um, and uh, as, as an actual sport. And they're just going to assume, oh, skateboarding, that's that thing that Tony Hawk does. Um, and That's exactly what all the 13-year-olds are saying. 100%. Hey, they, they just re-released the Tony Hawk games for like PS5. They're like, Tony Hawk's relevant again. They've also just released, now that's what I call music, 109. So... <laughs> God, is it really at 109? Yeah, sorry about that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Let me step in while Steve has his midlife crisis. I'm not old. On air. He is old. I'm not. So it's exactly that. I think with the BBC, actually, there's a definite damned if they do and damned if they don't situation because in the past they've been criticised for sending hundreds or thousands of staff to the Olympics to cover it for one reason or another. This year they've been getting complaints for not showing enough sport. So, um, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, in this instance, I don't necessarily think it's it's not the BBC's fault that they can't show this. That that is no. the deal that the um, I mean, I'm assuming it's the Olympic Committee uh, made this decision and and sold the rights to uh, to Discovery Plus. Um, and that's something that actually I, I genuinely think governments should be having a word with them about for for next time round. Is that you don't do this. Because what this has done is limited exposure. And the Olympics is a fantastic international event. It is something that actually does make a difference in a lot of, uh, a lot of ways. It's a, a, a great global unifying moment that 
that everyone can get behind. Because here's the thing, even if you don't care about one element of, of the Olympics, it's guaranteed to be something there that you're interested in. Like, I'm not partic- overly particularly interested in like the track and field events. I absolutely love watching the badminton. I really enjoy um, like the shooting and the archery. Um, the more like random obscure things I, I find fascinating. Like climbing is now in the Olympics for the first time. I used to be uh, used to go bouldering quite regularly, mm-hmm. and, and all of these things are things that I, I would find really interesting. And everybody will find that, and it, it's a great way for governments of all sorts to, to be able to encourage activity, encourage people to to to, to pick up a sport or, or an activity. Um, and yeah, like governments need to actually basically gang up on the IOC and just say, stop this. We need to be able to display this meaningfully. Like, yeah, you need money. Fine. Let's have a conversation about that rather than you just selling it off to a streaming service so they can line their profits. Yeah. And and part of the decision, I think, for Discovery was also about because some of it is based on Eurosport. I think Eurosport is generally one of those stations that sort of shows second and third level sport, doesn't show massive events. So it's done it for their for their branding, which is a phrase that just makes me twitch. And in terms of, I'm not quite sure how yeah, some sort of global coalition, maybe Alex Sharma when he's jetting around for COP26 can sort of mention it on the bottom of the agenda item. But there's um, some the British government, they have sort of, crown jewels events where events have to be on free to air telly and so the olympics is on that so some of the olympics has to be on free to air and i think england football matches are part of that cricket isn't part of that because the government of philistines you can sort of see that the ecb has you can see the ecb has uh, almost woken up to the fact that maybe taking cricket off free to air telly uh, it was a bit of a mistake because the hundred has been brought in um which um, has put not just men's cricket, but also women's cricket on free-to-air telly. So you have a situation where um, essentially the ECB has spent £380 million on this competition and they've changed the rules of cricket and they've bypassed the existing teams that already existed and they've put that on free-to-air. But maybe what they could have done is just put women's cricket on free-to-air telly and that would have done exactly what the 100 was meant to do and they could have saved 280 million pounds quite possibly um the i mean the, 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 i'm just trying to remember there's, there's a, this, this isn't the the, the 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 this is like the second time like a, a reworking of cricket has was like like happened wasn't there like a like I can't remember what it was called. It was like a like a, a faster version of cricket or something that was that was meant to be brought in a few years back, which has like been done in big stadiums, worked really well in like India, because India, um, but and it has failed to like take off elsewhere. I can't remember what it was called. What twenty twenty? Yeah, it might have been yeah. Called, yeah. Well, so so yeah, so twenty twenty is an established version of of cricket, and the counties play. Um, so in England, because. The county championship was started in 1890, and back then it maybe made sense for uh, counties to play rather than cities. So, for instance, Warwickshire play in Birmingham, and then there's Warwickshire County Cricket Club rather than Birmingham. Um, and so, yeah, so 2020 was brought in, and it, the idea was it um, it was it was faster. So, games are played in two or three hours. 
rather than over a day or five days and it was meant to be family friendly and more about trying to get families in and the so it's um sanjay patel who's the chief commercial officer of the ecb he used to be marketing executive for heineken and he's the one who's had the idea of the hundred and trying to bring in explicitly bring in a younger female demographic because most of cricket's fans are old um yeah i think the average age is over 50 but you've kind of got a situation where cricket's a cricket's executives in the 50s 60s 70s used to be old ex-cricketers who'd done a bit in business so they might not have been the most uh nicest or competent people but they at least had the interest of the game at heart whereas now you've got people in cricket who are trying to market it like you might market a beer or a brand of crisps and i don't quite think that's how it works necessarily working in marketing like for the amount of money that, that you said they've they're spending like there will have been a lot of thought that's actually gone into how they do this and and you don't get it to be in the position where you're like work like would you say did you say he was like cmo for a heineken or, yeah yeah like you don't get to be into that position without to a degree knowing what you're doing but, but, it, no, but it's not about it's not that he doesn't know this, this is not about his particular skill this is more about the mindset that you take to it and that what what the hundred has done essentially is they've changed the rules mm-hmm. so cricket so the, the quicker version that you, you said already it was um 20 you got you get 120 balls 20 balls of six overs and um they've decided that terms like overs or wickets are too complicated for the sport for the general public to understand so they've been replaced and the other thing that this seems to be is that the as they've not gone through the counties they've established eight new teams based around cities so like birmingham phoenix is one i think london spirits another one um and the only thing and matthew angle wrote an interesting article about this the only really thing that's that is connected with Birmingham and Phoenix is the group that brought out bought out Longbridge back in the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, no, one hundred percent. The names are are absolute like American football style, like Oakland Cavaliers um, or, 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 or whatever. Because like, and, and there's been attempts to bring that in in in, in football. From what I remember, wasn't it like Hull that was supposed to be being renamed the Hull Tigers or, mm. or something like that after like one of their. I think they were actually bought out by by somebody who runs an NFL team, and they were just like, "No, we need to market this in a in a way." And like, from a, here's the thing: from a pure marketing perspective, that's one hundred percent correct. Um, the issue, as you say, though, is does that work with the sport? And you need it, it very much does become one of those things where you, it might do. Like it could in absolutely turn around and say that actually this marketing does deliver um, more interest in the game, more newer players, and therefore it acts as a bit of a, a revitalization potentially. Um, but we don't know that yet because it's all very, very new. But equally, that's not to say that your your concerns um, almost like about about the spirit, I suppose, of, of, of the game are un, unfounded. Um, it's just when you have something like something like cricket, which has been struggling for a while, something needs to change. And yeah, maybe just dumping it on free to free to air TV would have helped a lot of that. 
Um, but but equally, it might not have done. And they, this is about the ECB trying to do whatever it can to to encourage the future. Sometimes change is necessary. You have a situation where, as you as you say, the, the ECB have bet the farm on this, and um, and have managed to put the hundred. Well, the hundred is now on in the middle of. The, it was meant to be in last year, but there was some. It started this year, which means the hundred is on in the middle of the Olympics, and it's also on in the middle of England's Test series with India, which is a little bit like having a new football tournament, which starts during the European Championships yeah. and bypasses all the Premier League clubs. And I think that the, the issue, I think, with treating it as a um, as like a, a different tin of beans or something or a different chocolate bar is that sport isn't like a chocolate bar and it's it's not like a packet of crisps it's something where you have a it's connected to a place it's connected to friends and it's connected to memories and family and tradition which this doesn't have so I can see why, if you want to reach out for new fans, that's good. However, spending £380 million pounds on it and completely <laughs> putting all your chips on this particular space on the, on the board makes me worried. Uh, on the other hand, people have been predicting the death of county cricket since about 1893. Yeah, so it's, it's still going. So, and I think certainly in 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 the U in the UK, as long as like the Ashes are a thing that gets coverage, there's always going to be like people going cricket. What's cricket? And then enough people will probably go get interested in you. It continues mm. again, maybe not to the full extent that you need to have like teams that are diverse of background rather than just a load of middle school middle class people who or upper middle class rich kids. Um, who uh, went to private schools, but that's a that's maybe, a separate discussion. Maybe we could get on free to my telly, so people might actually be able to watch it. <laughs> but that's a bit of a radical view, isn't it? Well, I'm going to celebrate dragging Steve into a cricket discussion. If you want to hear us talk more about sports that we don't understand, you can back us on Patreon, can't you, Steve? Yeah, you can head over to patreoncom slash champagne uh, where you can throw us a few pounds uh, every month. Uh, that goes towards uh, running the uh, running the podcast. It covers our costs, basically. Um, uh, in exchange for your hard-earned money, uh, you'll gain access to uh, unique episodes that we put up um, for our for our backers or our champagners, um, where we're a little bit a little bit more relaxed. Um, and uh, we will uh, kind of like be delving into uh, a number of other topics, some of which might be similar to uh, to, to 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 what we talk about uh, on the on the regular episodes. Others will be completely out off off kilter and uh, and uh, you know a little bit out the blue. But uh, yeah, hopefully we, we can uh, see you there. I'm never relaxed. I always live in a constant fear of anxiety and suspicion. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Cram designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting.